It's been a bit of a weird year, hasn't it? I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail... Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail... Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... If I can in love with you... You two are so lucky that you need to work with me. Get this beautiful music, free of charge, every day pretty much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we could talk very briefly about how I have inflicted music in it upon you all this year. <laughs> whether, you, whether you like it or not, I noticed towards the tail end of the year you would go and work in um, an isolated editing booth. I can't help but feel those two things are possibly related. No, not at all. It wasn't about the singing. <laughs> it's about being distracted. <laughs> yes, it can be quite difficult to focus in our little neck of the Radio New Zealand office sometimes, can't it? Because we're kind of in the thick of things. Yeah, well, we're, we're sort of in the main on the main thoroughfare yeah. and people coming and going, so there's so many opportunities to um, stop Stop and chat to people and gossip about their latest story and whatnot. And sometimes you just have to get your head down and do that editing. I feel like it's been one of those years, though, where incidental conversations have become quite important to one's sanity. I agree, yeah. You know, it's been quite nice being here. Having that social interaction with people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's been a bit of a weird year, hasn't it? Yeah, the understatement, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should tell people a bit about what happened when lockdown happened, because we we were a bit up in the air, weren't we? We we didn't know what was going to happen with us. No, we were kind of on again, off again, and then we were pretty much, you know, overnight sent home mm. and told, no, the podcast, the detail is off for now. And then we were sort of dispersed uh, to various corners of RNZ. Yes, we were. We were lucky. Mm. Adopted. Yeah. We were very lucky, actually. Mm. Do you see what were you doing? Yeah, so I was uh, working on the coronavirus podcast that um, RNZ set up specifically for that kind of period. But it was just really surreal because we went from having a meeting talking about, okay, this COVID thing is getting really intense. We need to think about having a, a COVID-related podcast every second day to then shutting down and then doing something completely different. In my case, I was still working on a podcast, so that was still kind of the same, but obviously it wasn't with the detailed team. So, yeah. What about you, Sharon? Oh, I I was seconded it into RNZ business. It was like Groundhog Day for me because I've done it in the past, and it it was great fun because I could just pluck up an idea and get on with it. And I had all the equipment at home, so once I got over all the technical frustrations, (laughs) I had a great time. (laughs) Yeah, I I got adopted by Saturday Morning, the Saturday Morning Programme, Kim Hill's Programme, and I produced that for a little while, and then I went and did a little bit of hosting work for the panel, which was really strange because everything, if you remember, everything at the time we were doing by Skype. Um, and so I just got, you know, you, you got really used to the sort of underwater sound of people's voices. Yeah. Although it was very easy to get hold of people on the bright side. Yes, you know? I did find that. Yeah, there was no ex- there were no excuses for people not, <laughs> exactly. to, yeah. not to come on air. You, you can't yeah. really make anything else to get out yeah. of it. But I mean, because Sharon, I think you did a podcast about this strange virus that um, that was going through Wuhan quite early on in the piece, didn't you? Did you do a podcast about uh, Yeah, with um, the RNZ reporter Liu Chen. Oh, that's right, because yeah. she has that connection uh, with Wuhan. She mm. her, she comes from very close to the city centre. 
So we talked to her about the contact with her parents and what she knew about what was going on because she was able to talk to a lot of people over there and, and get a real feel for it. Once we came back, if you wanted to, you could do a podcast every day about COVID-19 and we sort of had to make the call to either to do that or to not, or to actually not do that, you know, and and try to bring back some sort of semblance of what the detail was was about, you know, while there was the sort of elephant in the room, you know. Mm, mm. That was a curious kind of position to be in, I yeah. felt. And I think people, you know, there was so much coverage about COVID and other media organisations that I think people really did enjoy the podcasts that weren't COVID-related, even though, you know, some of our COVID podcasts did do really well, like your 1P Impressor, uh, Sharon. Yeah, well, that was that was the thing that we were all glued to every single day, wasn't it? That one o'clock update on where we were at with COVID. And we all, you know, reached for the radio, we reached for the TV um, to see what the latest was. The interesting thing was that people started getting very irked by the way journalists at that press conference, that daily press conference, were asking their questions. The bad guys. Well, that's what some think. The journalists whose news-gathering methods are now on show for all to see. Apologise for this. It seems like there's been a lot of confusion around something. Cause, I mean, it's a pretty critical mistake. And are they going to lose their jobs? Why didn't you front foot it then today in your statement? I think it's that fine line, isn't it, between what is scrutiny and what then flips into gotcha or what some would call harassment. So we wanted to look into this a little bit closer. What actually happens when they go into the Beehive Theatrette? And we got hold of, of Thomas Coglin from Stuff, who was there every single day, and got him to really explain what actually happens. So he took us right back to the beginning when... On a daily basis, the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield got up onto the stage. What the public perhaps don't get is is the ticks, the towels. She's like a poker player, you know, and we can read her quite well because that's sort of our job. And the the repetitive, occasionally um, aggressive questioning is a way of of cutting through that. It was like a daily soap opera, wasn't it? And you had the good guys on the stage... And then the journalists were being, I guess, portrayed as the bad guys. And this was about the public backlash to their um, aggressive behaviour. So Thomas gave us a pretty fascinating insight into what actually happens in the theatreette. I think that was the top-rated podcast that we did this entire year, that 1pm press conference. Was it? And, mm, yeah. Um, and it was one of many podcasts that, I think it was three or four podcasts that Thomas Coughlin was involved in. Um, He's been a real MVP, a sort of superstar of the show, really, hasn't he? It's, um, you know, there have been some voices that have just kind of popped up here and there. And the thing that I found interesting about him is the um, the variety of stories that he was able to talk about. You know, obviously he could talk about that from a first-person point of view. I talked to him about managed retreat, um, which was, you know, people living in coastal properties, um, essentially, which are going to be unlivable in 50 or 60 years, uh, essentially being bought out by the government, was to talk to them about superannuation. It's great having people like that in New Zealand, isn't it? Yeah, and the beauty of the detail is that we uh, have access to every journalist. It doesn't matter which 
media company they work for, unlike other organisations, we don't just have to work with the people within newsroom who have also been amazing to us, but mm. across the board. And that is something that's unique about the detail is that if there's a story that we like that we want to explain, we can go approach that journalist, no matter who they work for, and ask them if they will come on the, on the podcast. Jesse, tell us about your Chinese shipwreck story. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing this story about the Chinese shipwreck under SS Ventnor because it covers such a wide range of time in terms of the New Zealand history. So to give you guys a bit of background, basically in the early settler days, a lot of Chinese miners came over to New Zealand and they died here. There was one man uh, in particular, Choi Su Hoi, who arranged for their bodies to be um, repatriated back to China so that they could be buried there. Um, but what happened was that the ship sank off the Hokianga coast and Iwi up north have since looked after the recovered bones. But no one really knew about this until a few years ago and some of the Chinese community found out about it. Once they did, they developed a relationship with Te Rorua and Te Rawara. But this year, a documentary filmmaker, John Albert, has caused all sorts of controversy um, by disturbing the remains. You're talking about um, Choi Su Hoi's family being upset about the documentary. If you go on the news every day, there are things that we see on TV that none of us like to see, but it's part of life. As far as I can see this one here, it is part of our New Zealand history, and I have every right to tell our New Zealand history. What's been your favourite, Emil? Well, the first story that I was going to talk about um, is a story that I did way back in February, actually, which was about, this was just after um, the Moriori people had come to a treaty settlement with Andrew Little, which was the, the culmination of something like 20 to 25 years they had been looking for a, a treaty settlement. So where did the myth that Moriori were wiped out originate? Well, it's a convoluted story, but it's important, so hang in there. This was a fascinating story for me because I remember learning about the 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 Moriori myth when I was a kid. That myth then became uh, taught in schools. So from 1916 onwards, um, school journals were, were publishing and teaching these this myth to generations of New Zealanders, who many of whom the older generation still believe it today. And the reason it became so powerfully ingrained in the psyche of, of New Zealanders is because if Māori could push Moriori out of New Zealand, then later European migrants could push Māori off their land. It suited the narrative. It suited the narrative, and it was a justification for um, European colonisation of, of Māori land. I found this an interesting podcast because it wasn't... I mean, there was that sort of immediate relevance, but it was more of a history of what had actually happened, which was part of that treaty settlement, was an agreed history of what... Um, the, the record actually was with the Moriori people. Another podcast that got a lot of reaction, but for completely different reasons, was our podcast about young people and pornography. And that generated so much response from people who didn't even really bother to read the story or listen to the podcast. But it was it was partly around this fantastic um, Kiwi porn ad that actually went global. It got at least 22 million viewers. And if you remember, it was about a couple 
a nude couple who turned up on the doorstep of an ordinary house and mum opens the door. Hiya, I'm Sue. This is Derek. We're here because your son just looked us up online, you know, to watch us. Matt! Matt, darling, there's some people here to see you. So he watches you online? Yeah, you know, on his laptop. iPad, PlayStation. Mm, his phone, your phone. Smart TV projector. Yeah, anyway, we usually perform for adults, but your son's just a kid. He might not know how relationships actually work. We don't even talk about consent, do we? Now we just get straight to it. Yeah, and I'd never act like that in real life. <laughs> and it was so cleverly filmed and the dialogue was so cute and funny. Um, it was, you know, it was cheeky. Yeah. and But obviously there was a serious side to it, and that is that kids are looking at pornography from a very early age. And the aim of this was to try and get people talking about it and people to acknowledge it rather than say, shut it out, I'm not talking about it. And I talked to Chris Taylor, who just finished a PhD at Auckland University on pornography addiction. And so he was sort of, you wouldn't say he was pro-porn, but he was very uh, understanding of people's views and he'd talked to a lot of people about it. And basically what he told me was it's too late to try and stop it or prevent young people from seeing porn. He says the cat is out of the bag. I can't really blame them for looking at pornography because they are interested, teenagers are naturally interested in sex. But, you know, I mean, where else are they going to get that information from? There's a really interesting follow-up to this campaign, and that is that the company that made the ad, Motion Sickness, which is a very young, groovy, funky company, they have teamed up with the Department of Internal Affairs. So this is another joint project with them. It's kind of the next step in the campaign. And this is a six-part online miniseries called The Eggplant. Um, you, pro- you might have seen I the... have seen the billboards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I don't know why it's called The Eggplant. Well, I mean, I would assume that it's called The Eggplant because the eggplant is the emoji that is a substitute for the penis, so... Jesus um, said penis. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Some millennial talk there. It's all it's taken off already. It was only recently launched and it's looking at topics like bullying, uh, using pornography to learn about sex, grooming by people that they don't know and sending and receiving nudes. So obviously a serious side to it, but told in a light-hearted way. I love that episode actually because Porn can be a very difficult topic to have a mature discussion around because people can have sort of irrational reactions to it, eh? You know, it can just some people just don't want to don't want to hear about it. Mm. It can be people get very very squeamish around it. But I thought that that was a lovely and really mature and fun actually fun mm. fun podcast and, and topic of conversation. It was open. You well, know? I think that's why the ad worked is that it was it was cute and funny, and so and that was really interesting, wasn't it? Because I remember. Um, in our office, when we started talking about it, oh my God, I think that generated the most conversation that we've ever had around a topic that the detail has done. It could also have been because every time we walked past you, you just said, I'm sorry, I can't talk, I'm knee deep in porn. <laughs> I don't remember that. Don't believe you, Jesse.
Many philosophers throughout history have held controversial views and controversial personal views. Carl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger sympathised with Nazi ideology. Does holding controversial personal views or philosophical views dilute any contribution philosophers might make to broader philosophical thought? Well, it, it shouldn't. So um, uh, you ought to be able to consider uh, people's arguments on the merit of the argument. This was in early March, and it was when the Australian philosopher Peter Singer was coming to New Zealand. He was going to give a talk about effective altruism, which is like the idea of you know, how do you best use your resources to help as many people as possible. He was coming to New Zealand to speak at Sky City, and his appearance was controversial because Peter Singer has expressed some really unconventional and controversial, and some people have said bigoted views in the past, um, particularly around disabled people. He has put forward the idea that it is morally okay for the parents of disabled babies, really disabled babies, who are... um, who medical doctors would say will live a very short and very painful life, which will end very early. He says that it is okay morally for the parents of uh, children in that position, in concert with doctors, to make the decision to actively end that child's life, Mm. which is essentially saying, in some cases, infanticide is justified, which is a really, really um, extreme thing to say for a person to say. And naturally, when he came to, when he was planning to come to New Zealand, um, the disabled community was very uh, upset that this guy was being given a platform um, because they, you know, very much disagreed with that idea. Um, Mm. And I mean, that also links to the whole idea of cancel culture, right? Yes, yeah, it does. And the idea that, um, you know, if, if you disagree with someone vehemently enough and you... Um, have a platform and you are loud enough that you can stop somebody from speaking out and saying what they want to say, which which is a thing that we sort of ca- came across quite a bit this year. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily describe what happened to Peter Singer as, as cancel culture, but um, yeah, it did tap into that. My name is Cruddles Roberts. I stand here in this room full of people I admire and have love and respect for. Humbled, honoured and proud to be a Rotarian. One of the most special podcasts for me this year was about a, a woman called Criddles Roberts. And I think this was a case where... I've, re- I've been wanting to do a story on her for a long, long time and I had to find a way of doing it. It wasn't necessarily newsy, but she is such an extraordinary woman that I wanted to, I guess, find an excuse for telling her story. I met Criddles several years ago when I was doing stories about homelessness and I interviewed her because she was, she had sort of set up her own little charity where she was distributing food to homeless people and poorer families around Auckland. And the um, extraordinary thing about Criddles is that she came from that background and she has built herself up and she's a very humble woman, but she's also very charismatic and not afraid to, you know, go to anybody, doesn't matter who they are, and ask for help. So my, I guess you could say my angle or my peg, as we call it in the in the news business for this podcast, was that she 
became the new president of Waitakere Rotary Club. And the reason why that's that's unusual or that's um, almost crazy is that Criddles is young, she's Māori, she's tattooed, you know, right down to her fingers that have, have, have gorgeous gold rings on them. She was born into a gang family and, as I said, she was once a homeless teenager living in Sydney and she got involved with Rotary as part of her work with her own charity which is called Unity in Our Community to help poor families. So she was, you know, reaching out to all different kinds of groups and and then she was, um, she got very involved and then they appointed her the new president and she invited me to that uh, leadership changeover which was just quite an experience. Yeah, what was that like, Sharon? It was quite wonderful. We drove out to Swanson where the club is and there was such a such a, um, a range of people there. She had a lot of whānau and some had travelled down. I remember it was a really stormy night and some had travelled all the way down from Kaitaia for this really special night. I love that podcast because it taught me what the Rotary Club was because previously I didn't. I had no idea. I thought they were like the Freemasons or the Stonecutters from the Simpsons or, you know, some kind of like cult group. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the thing with the detail, right? Because we ourselves get to learn all these different things and break views that we held maybe previously, and that is really the intent behind why we do what we do. It is to look at an issue and to really think, okay, so here's this thing that's been happening in the news and everyone's talking about it, but what does it actually mean and, and, and what... If this happens, then what does it mean, and and that kind of thing. So, and I've really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to, you know, spend twenty minutes most of the time. But you know, just having that amount of time to really get into the nitty gritty of something has been really great. You know, and 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 I hope our listeners have enjoyed that as well. Just being able to learn something about a, a topic that you never really thought of. And I guess that leads us to give our thanks to everyone who has come onto the detail to speak to us, including our regulars, Auckland University in particular, and all the reporters from the different news organisations across New Zealand who have um, taken some time out to speak to us about yeah, stories that they've been working on. Um, so we really appreciate um, that. Also, we couldn't pull these podcasts, these daily 20-minute um, podcasts together without Alexia Russell, who is our amazing producer. Plus, uh, the people who really give it the spit and polish right at the end are the engineers who mm. do have amazing flair and skill, and we're very grateful to them as well. We'll all be back at the start of February next year, and... If you've missed any of our podcasts, you can always go back and listen to them. They're on newsroom.co.nz, RNZ, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our engineers, Jeremy Ansel, Blair Stagpole, Adrian Holley, Jeremy Veal, and Rangi Poak. Meri kirihimete. Sendanje kwaila. Are you seeing Emil to sing us out of 2020? No, I'm not going to No, no. I'm not going to sing us out. Inappropriate. Look at that.
that's it. That's my last pod for the year. All done. Goodbye, my lover. Goodbye, my friend. You have been the one. You have been the one for me.